Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all in the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. This episode is sponsored by our friends at the NTMA, the National Tooling and Machining Association. The NTMA is an association of privately held, entrepreneurial-based, and family-owned businesses, representing nearly 1,200 small to mid-sized machine shops and tool and die shops across the country. They have approximately 30 very active regional chapters that host local events, run apprenticeship programs, and provide other services to their regional members. As an association of peers, the goal of the NTMA is to help members of the U.S. precision custom manufacturing industry achieve profitable growth and business success in a global economy through networking, workforce development and training, technology, best practices education, advocacy, programs, and services with industry partners. To learn how your company can get involved with the NTMA, including how to join, visit ntma.org. Shazam! This is Jay Jacobs. Welcome to the Job Shop Show. Today is another question and answer session with Jeff Gorman and I chatting with one of our listeners. By the way, if you have questions to ask and would like to be on the show, we want you to be on the show. Please let us know. Anyways, Scott Duncan of FNM Tool and Die in Central Massachusetts contacted me with questions about a post I made recently on LinkedIn regarding growing to 20% EBITDA. Scott bought a small shop in 2018 and has slowly been repositioning it into a more modern shop. We chat about getting to 20% EBITDA from a variety of angles, understanding why you want to get to what might seem to be a high profit margin and how you might try to get there. We also praise entrepreneurs organization and what a shop owner, particularly a solo shop owner, might take away from being a member. Scott is currently an active member. I am a former member and we count many friendships developed through the organization. In fact, this is how we met. I hope this conversation adds value to your day. Scott, good to see you again. How are you? Doing all right, Jay. How you doing? Living the dream, buddy. Living the dream. And Jeff, you're back here joining us today. Yes, sir. Glad to be here. Nice to meet you, Scott. Likewise. As you so, can see, I'm wearing my paperless swag. I actually right. wear this today, so a little bit gross, but that's all right. That looks so, like one of the uh, the old school cuts. We might have to send you out a new hat. We got. Hey, man. I'm all about it. I mean, I prefer vintage. <laughs> but old school works for me too. Yeah, it could only, I guess it's only possible that it's five years old maximum or so. So it's not too vintage, but <laughs> it's a lot of miles for a hat though, admittedly. Yeah. 
Well, Scott, you and I met at an entrepreneur's organization get together probably how many years ago was that? Maybe five years ago or so, six? Ah, yeah, probably something like that. It was the first EO event I ever went to. So I would peg that 2018. Okay. Yeah. And for the listener, Entrepreneurs Organization is a fantastic organization. It's global. It's got thousands and thousands and thousands of members. And to qualify, you have to be an entrepreneur. The owner manager of a business of revenue of at least a million dollars. And it's a way to connect you with other entrepreneurs because a lot of times you're operating in a vacuum. You don't really have anybody within your company to talk to. And then you join EO and you find out your problems are not uncommon, that there's a other people are experienced the same thing or have experienced it or will experience it. So you, you get together and you, you help each other out. And I think it's, it's a fantastic organization. And maybe you want to th- throw a couple words in on it. Maybe you want to throw a couple words in on it, Scott. Yeah. At this point, I, I think it's safe to say that I'm going to be a lifer. Very few people understand that isolation and not isolation in terms of like loneliness, but you you are operating in a vacuum. There are a lot of decisions that you need to make. Things are coming at you fast. And EO is all about sharing experiences. So chances are someone in your group has had that experience before and they can add some color based on that. And an example of that, everyone in manufacturing, everyone in metalworking is talking about the labor shortage that we have right now and the lack of the next generation coming up. I've found through EO that that's not unique to manufacturing or machining or anything like that. This is actually kind of like a, maybe not a crisis, but this is a problem that business and the U.S. is going to need to figure out coming up. And that's made me feel a little bit better about dealing with the same problem on a much smaller scale at FNM Tool. So you just mentioned your company, Scott, FNM Tool, and before we get into, and I'll step back and say, Scott emailed me and had a question, a specific question, which I thought would be best answered in a recorded manner. And he agreed to do that so that you can, the listener, get the value out of the conversation as well. And Scott's got a a fun background, I think. Maybe you could share a little bit about that and set up how you became the owner of FNM. Sure. Yeah. And, and there were actually, there were two intriguing LinkedIn posts that you had recently, Jay. And one of them was about, I guess, running a process until you reach 20% EBITDA. And then the other was related to that point that I made earlier about, we've got a lot of retirements coming up, definitely in manufacturing. And I got into FNM tool and I by virtue of you know buying a small business. So If we rewind, geez, I'm trying to think of when I graduated, but I graduated as a mechanical engineer in 2010, worked at very medical device startups in the Boston area. And I always had that entrepreneurial bug. I always kind of thought that what I would do is end up starting a med device company. And that's the platform that I got into business school on. Like, this is my goal. This is my passion. This is my dream. And I don't know. It's just, I think it ended up being not quite an insurmountable task, but this opportunity was presented to me that there are many paths to entrepreneurship. One of them is starting your own thing from scratch and the other is buying an existing business. So 
I got together a group of connections from business school, pooled funds, raised a really small amount of private equity, technically called a, a self-funded search fund, if you will. And then basically just started pounding the pavement looking for deals. So originally I'm from Worcester, Massachusetts, rather than trying to spread a nationwide search for a specific type of business, I looked like kind of hyper-focused within Central Mass. And just, I think, because of my background and because of the types of businesses that are kicking around in Central Massachusetts, I've, I've found a lot of manufacturing opportunities. Took a year off in between business school, kind of scrapped by, and, and F&M Tool was the business that spoke to me and spoke to the guy who was selling it. So, hey, presto, here we are four years later, four and a half years later, and still at it. We could probably have a whole podcast on your acquisition of the business, but that's not why we're getting together. So we will put that one on hold. What, if you could state for the listener, was the question that you came to me at with? Well, it was really around this concept that you had. And I, I'm running into these issues in my own business where I think it's easy to pursue growth in revenue. Like go after all you have to do is quote really low and your revenue is going to come. You might end up with an internal bottleneck and you can't get all of that work out, which we've certainly come across. But what you alluded to in your post was that really what should be driving you is profit. And there is some or EBITDA, there's some EBITDA threshold at which it's almost like you've validated that your business process is working. And once you reach that point, that's when you start to think about really scaling revenue. It's almost like you have to get the recipe right before you try and really scale it up. So I was just curious how you thought about that because we're not at that EBITDA mark yet, but I think that that's attainable for a small shop. And I just wanted to see if you could elaborate on what it was that you posted about. Well, there's a lot of different factors that that play in it. And I appreciate you asking that question because I'll say at one point in time, I was more focused on revenue than EBITDA. I took my eye off the ball, if you will. So this is not something that you're one and done. EBITDA, first of all, stands for earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. So it's a it's a way of really, are you making money making parts or not? And what I found was that if you're not making money, then you have no cash to fuel growth. And you can't grow without cash. I always used banks for my source of financing if I ever needed it. And they won't want to lend to you unless you're actually making money. So ties into that. The other thing is that depending how you're using depreciation, you are going to pay a significant chunk of your profit to Uncle Sam. And depending where you are in the country, I was in New Hampshire, there's no state income tax, but probably going to pay income tax. You may even have county or city taxes. And so if you're making $100, you may walk away with only $50, $60 in your pocket after that. So it's not like that whole $100, you look at the bottom line and go, wow, I got all this money to spend. Like, no. (laughs) And then the EBITDA is before interest. And if you are buying equipment for growth, then you will have interest, which is a 
cash flow consideration. It's actual cash going out, but it you could have a lot of cash going out at, as interest and still show that you're making profits, but essentially have a negative cash flow. And I know, Scott, you know all this. I'm saying it more for the listeners, but you got to get a profit to a certain hurdle so that you are at least covering the interest and payments and having a positive cash flow. And I guess really a positive cash flow is more important than having the positive EBITDA. That 20% number for me is one I sort of stumbled upon naturally. But if you're making 20% EBITDA, you're probably going to have a positive cash flow. That right. makes sense, right? Yeah. And especially for a shop that's trying to grow, like depreciation is a very real expense. There are some businesses where mm-hmm. it's just an ad back, but that's where all of your equipment is. So you, that 20% EBITDA, just come up with an arbitrary like d- division to say, let's put 10% of revenue towards new equipment acquisitions. That's really hard to do when either you don't have any EBITDA or you're five, 10%. That's a really difficult decision. So it's, it's almost like a flywheel that once you start making those investments, which generate more cash flow, those sorts of things become easier. At least that's what I'm trying to achieve. And that's a great point. I sort of sidestepped it. The interest payment, EBITDA is before the interest. The principal if you've got a loan, never hits your profit and loss numbers at all. It's it's strictly a balance sheet item, but it's still part of the cash flow and a, and a significant chunk, even more so than interest. So for you, what was that like? What, what was the point where you decided to start focusing on EBITDA or cash flow or profit, however you want to call it, versus revenue growth? Well, again, I stumbled upon it because I bought the business in 2001 and recession immediately hit. All of a sudden, the lights turned back on in September 2003. And all the marketing and sales efforts we had done created a lot of demand. And that enabled us to raise our prices. And then to get to the 20% EBITDA pretty quickly. So it was, in a sense, we were starving under capacity and then we were overwhelmed and over capacity and the way that i like to throttle capacity is through price not lead time and that's something that sounds sort of really simple to say but it's it's something i think all shop owners should really think about because for me i wanted to be a trusted source to my customers so they knew they could always get parts in one to two weeks or faster if they needed them and if I didn't raise my prices, then I would be overwhelmed. And I wouldn't be able to deliver for four, six weeks. And that really, <laughs> that was the opposite of my business model. That might be fine for your business, but be conscious of it. And Scott, I don't know where you stand on that. Well, it's it's difficult, or I've found it's more difficult. And the grass is always greener. I mean, I... I wish that we were selling things that had turnaround times in terms of like with that lead time, but to build a new injection mold, we're talking eight weeks. If it's really fast, we're talking above 20, if it's a big, complex, difficult mold to build. And 
it's difficult to estimate lead times. We've experimented with that on some of the repair things per your business model, where I would mm-hmm. rather have excess capacity and be reliable and, and deliver and filter based on price. But for some of the new stuff that we do, it's really difficult since it goes through a CapEx process. But just to rewind to one of the points you made, the first two years of your ownership were in a recession. Yeah, we bought the business three days after 9-11. Oh, wow. Sounds challenging. It was incredibly challenging, but it created the character of the business so that we were frugal. We had to be to survive. And that carried over for the rest of the time we were in business. We didn't count on there always being business. We were always prepared for a sudden downturn. Mm. And you also touched on the idea of filtering based on price. What advice would you have for a shop owner who faces resistance from either their customers or just their own internal resistance towards raising prices? I love pricing and Jeff can, he's probably, uh, I see him smiling there. It is surprising how much you can raise prices and not lose business. And people have this fear that I can't raise prices or all my customers will go away. Because the parts, unless you're doing, let's say, high medium, higher production, or or you're late in the product life cycle where they have sustaining engineering really looking at the cost, many times the customer doesn't really know exactly what the cost should be. And it's not that there's an exact science to determine costs. Excuse me. I want to say price. There's a, we sort of know what the cost is, but the price is so subjective. And we think that the customer knows what the price should be. They don't. And a lot of times the people buying it don't even have a mechanical or industrial background to make that determination. So if you step back and think about who is actually buying your parts and how they make a decision, whether your price is too high or not, they're, they're probably looking at competitors. And I'll say, if you're a good salesperson, you get a good story, you get the quote back faster, you can be a higher priced company and still win the business. Because a lot of times, as you said, you could keep your shop full if you lowballed everything, right? That drives company's nuts because that means you're going to miss deliveries and people the supply chains are so tight they don't want to miss a quarterly revenue goal because they don't have enough of these parts from machine shop x to finish the product and ship it for the end of the quarter that's going to get a lot of visibility in the executive area so price is not the only reason that people are buying quality lead time and something which i touched upon before is is if you create what i call a frictionless business environment you make it so easy to buy parts that if you put yourself again in your customer's shoes they have so many suppliers who create friction but they have to work with them that if you're a little bit more expensive but you're so easy to work with and reliable, they'll give you the business so they can move on and spend the time on the people they know they have to who create that friction. And when I say a little more, it might be five or 10% more, but that's what gets you from 
your 10% EBITDA closer to your 20% EBITDA. And just to echo an earlier point you made, I found that I don't, I really don't get a window into my competitors' pricing that often. It's more of like a through the grapevine thing, or by the way, we got a quote for this much. I don't think some of my competitors really have their pricing under control either. So not only do let me so let me say, I would guarantee a hundred percent of your customers, perhaps unless they're using the paperless parts quoting software. They absolutely don't have their pricing, their quoting under control and really know. Well, that's that's got pluses and minuses, too. So for yes. that reason, I just like to get shots on goal and I like to get mm-hmm. many high price shots on goal because chances are they're, for lack of a better term, winging it. So at least if I have some consistency with my process, if they're winging it, chances are I'm going to maintaining that consistency, win better, higher price stuff. Yes. Uh, I've also found that if I ask a customer, usually it's an emergency. And unless I present them with a different, like a different price for a different lead time, then typically the conversation is I need it as soon as possible. I've had a couple of conversations recently where what was an emergency repair job turned out not to be that big of an emergency because I was going to charge a lot for it. And rightfully so. I mean, we would be jumping stuff ahead of line for customers that we had kind of on our books on a docket for several weeks at this point. And for the right price, I was willing to create all of that chaos within my organization to get this thing done. But it turns out that they just didn't need it that bad and that's okay. But had we not had that conversation up front, we would have created chaos for both of our companies. I think every shop, if they can, should offer expedite pricing. And so in a situation like that, you quote your standard lead time and then you quote the price for an expedited delivery. And that way it does a couple of things. It, it shows the customer what the cost of their emergency is. Second, it puts them in the driver's seat. They Now they are making a decision, not between you and someone else, but between regular delivery and expedited delivery. And then it also gives you the opportunity to deliberately make more money for a job that's going to create chaos in your shop. And I'll even step back from that and say, an expedited job should never create chaos in your shop. You should never be that tightly scheduled where you can't do an expedite because think of maybe it's not a customer expedite, but it's a remake expedite because something happened on a job in your shop and you never know when that's going to happen. You don't want it to happen that often, but it happens. You have to have slack in your lead times. So for employees, I don't know, did you see that with your business or have you seen it with paperless customers where you create this slack in the system? And I've seen it here where we're charging more for repair. We're doing higher end stuff. We're turning stuff around on average a little bit faster than we have in the past. But there's this tension on the floor sometimes where guys want to have something to do all the time and our inventory on the floor has gone down. So it creates this effect. We're like, what's going on? This place used to be packed to the gills with stuff and now we have less stuff. Did you see that or do you know of customers of yours who've seen that? Well, Jeff, do you have anything you want to add from sort of a technical sense of using paperless in the the process? And then I'll, I'll answer in another fashion to Scott. 
Yeah, yeah, totally. Two things there, I guess. I, I wouldn't know kind of what the employee reaction is, but I, I definitely know that customers on paperless are operating that way and leaving slack in the line, as you put it. Circling back to what Jay was saying at the start of this call, where focusing on the EBITDA over revenue is, is more scalable. You know, you have room to, to build up. And at the end of the day, if you're trying to crunch in revenue, you're probably going to make more mistakes. So I think it's better from that perspective, just from, you know, an outsider looking in, in my opinion, but in terms of operating that way and paperless, several shops are basically padding their standard lead time. So, you know, it's their standard lead time plus, you know, 20%. So if it's 10 days, they're putting 12 and then offering an expedite for their standard 10 day option. So that just kind of sets the precedent that, hey, our standard time is 12, but if you want it faster, it's 10, but they're still geared to do it in 10 days. So they're not, you know, creating chaos or, you know, mayhem in the shop. They're just capturing money for their time, basically. Mm. Yeah. We, in the sheet metal at Rapid, quoted seven business days. We geared our systems to making it in five business days. And that way, even if we screwed up a job, we still had two days to recover. So you made a great point, though, about the team, the people being apprehensive, Scott, because it, you, you, you hit a really good point. Usually the way that the team thinks about how the company is doing is the work on the floor, right? Right. Absolutely. And so this gets into a theme that I spent a lot of time on, a lot of direct energy and time, we would have monthly meetings and I would tell people, I had some metrics like revenue. I wouldn't tell them what the profits were, but revenue, number of new customers, say, I I don't remember what things I was telling them, but things that make sense for your shop. And then, but in your case, Scott, I would say we are deliberately charging more money for jobs. It may appear that we're slower, but we are also doing X, Y, and Z to make sure we have a steady demand of business. And what we have found is that by not having the shop cram for jobs, we're able to take more profitable jobs that need a faster turnaround occasionally. That enables the company to make more money, which we can then reinvest back into people, equipment, and facilities. So I always was, and this was quite true, we we spent a lot of the profit that we made reinvesting it in people, equipment, and facilities. And if you have that monthly meeting and you say, you know, we just bought this new shear or we just bought this new grinder, machining center, whatever, that was paid for by the profits and how we've change the business. And I don't want you to have fear that you're not going to have a job. And, and it it took a while. It took a, a, probably a few years. And then the people who had been there for a while, the new people who would come in, they would reassure them that, hey, somehow magically, there's always work. And we can spend a lot of time talking about why I think manufacturing is going to do well this decade. But the other piece which I wanted to get into is the way that you create a lot of work and get to that 20% EBITDA is you have to invest a little bit in sales and marketing. The 
the tools to turn quotes around faster. It's proven the faster you turn around a quote, the more likely that you are to get a job. And you can charge a little more money since expand that EBITDA percentage by turning the quotes around faster. The other is expanding the number of RFQs. And so you got to make sure you, your website is if somebody within 30 miles of you can find you. And that's how, that's how they start now if, if someone's looking. And there's definitely dollars you want to be spending on marketing. You want to, I think, follow up on quotes. And if you didn't win a business, find out why not and use it as an opportunity to sell the other things your company does because they may not know of all the services that you can work with them on. So you put some time into sales and marketing and you think about it, I'm going to use an extreme here, but let's say you win 25% of your jobs, right? That you quote, let's say you double the number of quotes you have. You go from hundred quotes a month to 200 quotes a month. You're winning 25 jobs. Well, you either have to expand capacity because now you're going to win 50 jobs or another alternative is you raise your prices so now you're only winning 12 and a half percent of the jobs. So you've got the same number of jobs coming in. But the way you do that is by raising prices and people self-select out. And by investing a little bit more into the marketing specifically and somewhat into the sales, if you can double that quoting base, you can definitely get to 20% EBITDA. And that's why pricing is such an important lever yes. that you have right because yes so let's say that you, let's say you you double your price just to make it nice round numbers yeah. as long as you don't have your win rate you're ahead yes. and the that's, only say, say that again say that again <laughs> so if oh man now you trip me up i, I don't know so yeah. it's uh, as, if you, as, if you, if you can double your price yeah. you can double your price and as long as you don't have your win rate you're ahead yeah and it's cool like you do if you take on an incremental or a, a marginal job, you're going to have to buy more raw material for that. But as long as you have capacity that's on the shelf, which we're talking about that being the business model, it's almost like free money. Mm -hmm. It's almost free money. You're just buying additional material. So your machines could have sat empty, but you're at a higher price. You're utilizing your capacity better and I well, that's why pricing is so powerful, but it also sounds like you're talking about sales and marketing being something that allows you to get to that 20%. Absolutely. Um, wh what are some other things that your average shops aren't doing? And what would you peg the average shop at for an EBITDA margin if they're, they're just sort of doing the mom and pop thing and they're not taking advantage of these opportunities? Jeff, do you have a sense of range of average EBITDA right now for shops? You know, I don't think I could confidently make a judgment. First off, we have such a wide range of shops and yeah. organizations on, on the platform. But second off, like we're more, we're on the quote side. So we definitely, you know, we know what they're estimating, but we don't necessarily know what their costs truly are at the end of the day, unless we we're nosing into their ERP systems, but we're not doing that. So, you know, we'd have to have, have that data to figure it out, but I mean, it it has to be an average at each sort of like tier well, size shop. We have growth, pro, enterprise. I'll touch upon an area, and I want you to 
come in at the right time here, Jeff, on something that paperless we call the colors of money. And let's say you go out for finishing or even every job has raw material. How much do you mark up your material? And if you think about it, if you mark up your material, there's actually a cost associated with getting that material in. And then the rest would fall to profit. Make sense, Scott? Makes sense. Okay. So if you buy, I'm gonna use easy numbers, something for $100 and you mark it up 10% because it's like, oh, you know, I really can't mark up the material that much. And materials, 40% of your cost of sales, you're never going to get to 20% EBITDA. If you mark it up 25%, and this is where numbers get interesting, and I did a blog post on this. If you mark it up 25% and sell that 100 piece of material for $125, your margin's actually only 20%, meaning that extra $25 divided by $125 is a 20% margin. It's not 25%. And there's a cost to getting that material. You've got to order it. You've got to manage the suppliers. You've got to unload off the truck, things like that. So I think you actually need to mark up your material by a minimum of 33%, which would give you a 25% margin and maybe even more. And that goes for finishing in that. If you want to jump in for a sec, Scott, and then I'll have Jeff explain how paperless looks at that and why we we develop specific tools because we think it's so important. Well, you got me thinking about markups and historically we have not done that. It's something that I've been working on, but I don't think that there was any sort of programmatic way for marking up materials. And that's bitten us a couple of times because we're in a situation where let's say we're building a new injection mold and it's a hundred thousand dollars. We need to turn that quote around really fast. And we're typically buying sub-assemblies off the shelf for that. So another another five-figure thing. And we end up estimating what that price might be. So we get a little bit of a margin of safety if we end up marking that up a little bit. And it's a cost that we don't incur. Like, yeah, we're paying our people in purchasing anyway, but it protects us a lot. And some of my favorite jobs are when my customers buy that stuff because we can yes. be wildly, wildly wrong. And I don't like incurring that risk of, of estimating for my suppliers. So that's what you got me thinking of. Now, what about these are pretty costly things. I think some of these things might end up being, you know, 25, 40 grand for some of our bigger tools. Would you advocate marking those up 33% as well? Yes. Well, if you don't, you will not hit 20% EBITDA. Now, I'm a finance nerd, but you're going to have to walk me through that. So it's $100. Yeah. You mark it it up 33%. So you're selling it for $133. 33 divided by 133 is 25%. That's your margin. Yep. Figure your your cost to actually get all that in your purchasing, your all the associated things with it are 5% of the cost. Now, on something that expensive, maybe they wouldn't be, but let's in, in round numbers, let's just say it's 5% of the cost. That leaves 25% minus 5%, 20% profit margin. So in a way, 
unless your margin on your materials is at least what your desired EBITDA margin is, the act of buying materials dilutes your potential margin? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Gotcha, gotcha. And Jeff, can I have you jump in and talk about the color of monies here? Yeah, at yeah, I take back what I said, I guess, when we don't know true costs. So for material, we know true costs and paperless or you know, if they're getting an RFQ for the material or they have the last purchase price of that material in their you know, ERP table that we're looking at, or if it's a purchase component, they're plugging in the price they're buying that material for. And then same thing with, with services. So if they're getting, you know, an outside service RFQ, they'll take that price and put it on the quote. So that would be like as close to true cost that that we see on the quote and paperless. And the reason why I'm getting at that is like we make it easy to separate each of those costs. So you have material costs, you know, inside processing or inside labor costs, and then your outside service costs, and then any purchase component costs, if that's fasteners or anything like that, that you're buying, you know, off the shelf, as you put it. So we break all those categories out, and then you can programmatically, as you put it, Scott. So, and you're right there, there wasn't a way to do that. And that's what this colors of money feature is all about. So you can now sort of write a formula to mark each of those categories up independent of one another. And, you know, you can do it on the basis of quantity, even percent contribution to the total. So if my material cost is 40% of the cost of the whole part, make the markup, you know, X, Y, and Z, or if you know my outside service cost doesn't achieve, you know, fifty bucks, then mark it up this. If it achieves a hundred bucks, mark it up that. Any type of formula that way, or even levers who's the contact that you know reached out. If it's so and so, I want to mark their material up, you know, more than the next guy or something like that. So, as you were going through that, Jay, and you use the number thirty-three percent, I believe, for a recommended or minimum material markup. I was thinking to myself, what numbers do I see typically assigned to like each of those four categories? And mm-hmm. for material, it's anywhere from you know 50, 50, depending on the volume and quantity the shop does. Like if they do high run, it's going to be lower. We were talking to the Corbelix a few weeks ago. They do low volume, you know, and have a higher markup, as they were saying. But anywhere from like 20 to 55, 60%, I feel like is what I'll see for a material markup. And then for services, anywhere from 10 to 25% uh, inside processing, I think 35% area is a common number. And then purchase components varies. Some people don't mark them up or they do, you know, depending on, on the shop. But, you know, I think those are pretty typical numbers or at least ranges. And more shops are starting to, you know, write rules around, I guess, what those markups become. So that helps you understand, Scott. Yeah, definitely. The purchased components, though, that's interesting because, like, do you have the right to mark up someone else's work like that? Maybe, maybe that's a strong way of putting it. But if you're buying someone else's stuff and then putting it into an assembly, I see strong arguments on either side of it. You know, like this is just something that you incur. You have a probably a pretty small amount of administrative cost on your side. But at the same time, to Jay's argument before, unless you start marking this stuff up pretty significantly, that's going to eat away at what that potential profit margin you could earn is. So what are your thoughts on that, Jay? It's a philosophy thing. Real quick, Jay, I want to add, Scott, they're they're charging for, you know, the actual assembly of of the the good, of course. So I think it comes down to like 
you know, what is the actual purchase component? Are they 30 cent fasteners that we're already mm. charging the labor for inserting them? Or, you know, is it something different than that? So I think, you know, I, I don't know what you would classify as a purchase component, but the goal isn't just around the ability to, to mark up or apply margin. It's around like understanding the cost too, and being able to separate that from what you're estimating as your markup or profit. So you want to be able to keep track of what are my actual costs? And then, you know, you're going to be changing how you do markup and margin. So you want to make sure that regardless of whether or not you're applying markup to purchase component, you're still capturing that as like a cost line item, you know, on gotcha. each quote and all your quotes. It really is philosophy, Scott. And one of the things that I really liked about how paperless put forth the colors of money is it gives it visibility and makes you makes it something that you can look at, you can be forced to look at it. And maybe you are fortunate where you can mark up your inside processes, essentially everything you're doing in house, 50%. And that enables you to mark up your purchase components at 10% and be more fair, if you will, but still get to a 20% EBITDA. They don't all have to be 33%. Each of those categories is weighted as a percentage of how the part is made. And if you can grab a higher percentage in, in one area that can compensate for being lower in another area. Oh, it makes sense. Another is though, you also can look at and say, you know, do I want to be a $10 million shop at a 5% profit margin, or do I want to be a $4 million shop at a 20% profit margin? Or let's just, let, let's say it's a $10 million shop and a 10% profit margin, or a $5 million shop with a 20% profit margin. You're making a million dollars in each case. You can do a lot less work probably at the 5 million revenue level than you are at the $10 million revenue level. So I'd rather, I'd rather figure out how to get to that 20% EBITDA because I'm, I'm a lot less stressed. Yeah. No, <laughs> I have less, sure. le less people, less equipment, less facility. Well, you kind of, you went through both. Like, could you speak to your experience running a $5 million shop versus the $10 million shop? Well, we got to almost 50 million in revenue and we, except for the one time where I chased revenue sort of in the middle of that, we always hit 20% plus EBITDA. And that was a mandate to my team. And it, I said, we will not grow at all if that's what we have to do to maintain a 20% EBITDA. And there was no getting around that. That was a foundational practice of our company. And I think really the backbone, which a lot of owners, for whatever reason, they're not interested in putting a lot of time and money into sales and marketing. They get more joy out of the operations side. That's fine. But the more quoting opportunities you have, the higher margin you will make. So if Rapid got a hundred or a thousand dollar order, when you guys are really up and running, what percentage of that was materials for rapid it was really low 
Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I would imagine I've found like some of our best jobs and it's really just an indicator of how well you're pricing. It's, you know, the more pricing power you have over that material cost, the better that job performs. And that seems pretty elementary, but that's how I'm trying to measure what my pricing power is right now. It's because that's like, that's permission for us or validation from our customer that we're adding value above and beyond what this block of steel is. You know yes. what I mean? Yep. So what you're saying, if I hear, is that the lower the material cost for you, the more value add you think you're providing to the customer? Or... You know, I, there might be a little, some more nuance to it than that, but like, yeah, because my goal isn't to drive material costs down, but when you're, when you're talking about a percentage of revenue, it could easily be looking at it from the opposite end where you're increasing that price. And because your price is high, therefore material is a low, low proportion of what the total price is. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So I'm trying to figure that out. It's been four years and I'm not even close. Well, I think it's important to look at the categories that Jeff shared, what the percentage of the cost is your in-house processing, what percentage is purchase components, what percentage is outside services like plating, heat treating, and what percentage is material. And the more you look at those, the more you, it's, it's number of reps, you get tuned to what makes sense for your business and you may not be able to even articulate it but you know by looking at it what numbers make sense to you and and, and that was really hard for me to do as a shop owner and that's why I love this colors of money that we created because it's so easy to see it on everything you're doing and you can go back if you made a lot of money on a job look at how it was quoted see those or vice versa if you if you mm. lost money the other thing, which Jeff, maybe you can talk a little bit, which I think plays into what you just said, Scott, is the analytics and maybe define what analytics are, Jeff, and what sort of information we're giving shop owners that they probably have not been able to get before. Yeah. So our analytics tool, basically, you know, think, think Tableau or you know, a pivot table, basically anything, anything that you can kind of point, click, build queries. We offer a tool right in the app that allows you to do just that, you know, query all of your quotes, all your orders. And the reason why I think Jay's bringing this up is we can run queries, you know, report over week, over month, over year, whatever it might be of your, your average cost or average markup, you know, even total cost in each of those four categories that we talked about. So material, inside costs, outside costs and purchase component costs, you know, keep track of basically what the contribution is in each of those categories across all your quote items, but also see how, you know, manipulating your markups in each of those categories reflects on your win rate or on your profit revenue, et cetera. So we can show you your estimated, I was going to say your costs and, and your profit. So it's your estimated costs and your estimated profit and you know, what's contributing to that, basically. You can do a whole bunch of other stuff in the tool too, but break that down by each of your processes, each material type that you might be quoting. You know, even take a look at, you know, how you're quoting each of your accounts. And that brings me to A-B testing, which we have talked about in the past. So if you are interested in, you know, adjusting these things, adjusting your markups in these categories, you could perform an A-B test where 
you know, group A, you keep their markups the same. And then group B, maybe you add 3% or 5% in one or many of those categories and see if your win rate is impacted. Man, you're making me feel like so fortunate that I've got a team who can keep the operations on the rails here because this stuff is just so important to me, that analytics side. And I'm thinking of, I don't know, many job shop owners, I'm sure when they're running at 100 or 110% capacity because they aren't pricing enough and they aren't filtering out customers based on what would make them the most profit, they might not find themselves with the time to even do this stuff. So it's very circular very circular, self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm -hmm. You know, another thing I'll add in is that looking at the 80-20 mix of customers or your top five customers, what percentage of sales do they account for in your total revenue? And then what's the margin of them versus some of the other stuff? I don't know how it'll turn out for you in your shop, but a lot of times your top three customers, you don't make as much money on because you're afraid they'll go away. And over the years, you sort of train them to expect low prices. And maybe maybe they'd still be customers if you were making 10 to 20% more. It's and, and you don't have the courage now to raise the prices because that would be devastating for your shop. Yeah, and it's the longer it goes on, the harder the conversation would be. And yes. When I was looking at businesses to buy, I did come across a number of job shops, and typically a lot of them had what's called a high degree of customer concentration. And it's just mm -hmm. a $10 expression for being like, all of your eggs are in one basket with one customer. Mm -hmm. And that was a red flag for me as a buyer. And you engineer that situation when you don't have difficult pricing conversations with folks. I think that explains a lot of it. It's the type of thing, though, if you take AB testing a different way. If you start ratcheting up pricing for your largest customer, not on across the board, but here and there and deliberately without provoking them perhaps and having that difficult conversation, if you don't want to start to train them to accept a little higher prices. And I want to give shop owners the courage that they're, is going to be a lot of demand for domestic manufacturing and the retirement of shop owners from people like who you bought the shop from, Scott, if we're not careful as a country, we're gonna have less manufacturing capacity in 10 years and we're gonna need actually a lot more than what we have now. And that gap, it's not good for us domestically it's actually i think a national security issue but at the same time it enables shop owners to price higher make more money and i don't think profits are bad if you are let's say you're a non-capitalist if they're being invested back into your people into becoming more efficient by buying better equipment and improving your facilities because those create jobs for other folks. Perhaps if you raise prices and you just take it all off the table that someone could call you a greedy capitalist, but certainly you should get some as long as you're investing back into your, to your people, your equipment and your facility. Profits are essential for the U.S. to maintain the manufacturing capacity 
that we have a need. Oh, and it's, I agree with you 100% on this being an issue of national security and the whole idea of supply and demand within manufacturing. Like, I wish I was smart enough to have come up with this idea when I was first looking at businesses to buy. But now after spending four years here, I see supply and demand all the time. Like, we, we already have a manufacturing base in this nation that has been eroded over decades. I think that's going to play to my advantage as a mm-hmm. guy who's relatively young. Yes. This was this was my first acquisition. I think that it would maybe not immediately, it would have to be an excellent fit, but I think there will be more of that in my future because there aren't too many excellent options out there for many job shop owners until they do some of these things that you're talking about. A lot of themselves have unfortunately put themselves in a position where they've had their nose to the grindstone for so many years that they're just coming up for air right now thinking, man, I, I gotta, I gotta retire in a few years. What am I going to do? So you've got that whole phenomenon coming up. You've got that labor shortage that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. And I just personally, I think that we need to go back to a, a nation of making our own things, because if we're trusting everyone else to do that, then we're sort of eating out of their hands. And I don't know. I don't like that. Yeah. This has been a great conversation, Scott. I'm glad you reached out and, and asked the question and went in so many different areas that I didn't anticipate, but at the same time, I, I knew that it would. And Jeff, you added some, some great, I'll use the in air quotes, colors to the conversation <laughs> as well. Anything else you, you want to add, Jeff? Any other last questions, Scott, before we sign off? I would say just cool listening to you guys talk about that gives me you know a lot, a lot to think about as someone who is obviously not operating and and owning a business i definitely don't put myself in that zone of thinking as often so it's it's interesting to see you guys hear you guys talk about that different way of looking at you know the the things people are asking is when you start to think about it from from your perspective oh it's a curse man my wife gives me a hard time about like we're supposed to be watching (laughs) secession or something like that and i'm i'm just like running numbers on my calculator (laughs) app it's horrible but i appreciate you having me on jay it was enlightening. Thank you. Great to see you again. It's funny how you know, small conversations around a table at an EO event lead to things like this down the road. And No kidding. Uh, yeah. Another plug for EO. And I guess I'll leave it to the listener. Try, try raising some prices somewhere. I don't care where it is, whether it's in part of the quote or if it's to new customers, to old customers. But Think about think about what life would be like if you made 20% EBITDA. And is there a path to get there? And is that something, it's not going to happen overnight, but if that's important to you, think about how over the next, say, three, five years, you could, you could get to that number and what it would mean for, say it one last time, your people, the equipment in your shop, and the actual building or buildings that you're operating out of. So until next time, keep those lasers cutting and the spindles turning. Have a super day. Thanks for listening to the Job Shop Show podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Not only do I read every single one, it also helps me understand what content matters most to you. 
Thanks again for listening to The Job Shop Show.